from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. En el inglés o en los autores de lengua inglesa que, que, que Borges amaba, hay, hay una poda de florituras. Y en el español no, en el, en el español hay una tendencia a la floritura. Pero claro, el, el español es un idioma enorme. That is the great novelist Roberto Bolaño in an interview on Chilean television talking about Borges and how Spanish is a bigger, more expansive language than English. He was talking just as he was getting famous in 1999. I wish I could say that he's here today to talk about his new book, The Spirit of Science Fiction, but Bolaño died in 2003, age 50. Bolaño was born in Chile, then spent most of his adolescence in Mexico and most of his adult life in Spain. The New York Times has described him as, quote, the most significant Latin American literary voice of his generation. He is best known for two novels, The Savage Detectives and 2666. But those of us who've read him in English are also reading the work of Natasha Wimmer, who has been translating Bolaño for the last dozen years. Her version of his epic novel 2666 won both the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Penn Translation Prize. And now her eighth Bolaño translation is coming out, a novel called The Spirit of Science Fiction, which is not, by the way, science fiction. Natasha, nobody is more intimate than you with Bolaño's work. So when, when somebody asks, hey, what's it like? What do you say? It's hard to do. Stylistically, he's, he's a really interesting writer. I think he's known for these very long, lyrical, opaque sentences, but actually he writes in sort of two registers. He also have the, has this very plain, almost banal style. And the way that those two, those two kinds of prose sit together is what makes him an interesting stylist, in my opinion. Especially since in the last 30 or 40 years, I mean, so much of literary fiction has been one or the other of those two modes, right? And here's a guy who does them both. Yes, possibly. This is sort of a bizarre comparison, but he reminds me a little bit of the painter Gerhard Richter, who has, you know, this very abstract style and then this very super real style. That's interesting. Um, and and does politics, but not everything is political. Yeah, yeah possibly. Huh, interesting. Um, good comparison. A translation interests me so much, and it's why I'm talking to you, but a translator has to be a pretty good writer, right? I mean, and especially with a writer like Bolaño, who is who is so idiosyncratic exactly. linguistically. I mean, I would think would require a kind of subtlety of understanding that certain translators <laughs> wouldn't be able to manage. Well, I certainly had to work my way toward his style. And, I, that, you know, the first book that I translated was The Savage Detectives, and I really struggled with the pacing of his sentences. Some of them go on and on and on. Some of them do, and some of them don't. Uh, and some of them are run-ons, and some of them are not. Um, and, and you assume those that those are intentional choices with each sentence. You do assume that, except that in Spanish, the run-on sentence is more um, common and more sustainable than it is in English. So you have to decide when it's stylistically intentional and when it's something that is just part of 
um, the texture of the Spanish language and that doesn't necessarily need to come over verbatim into English. Really? That's um, that's an interesting choice. And it borders on something else I wonder about. Like, do you ever just like, well, I'm going to improve this? Um, that's a question that the translator does wrestle with. I certainly don't go into a translation intending to improve anything. Um, but there are lots of gray areas because the resources of the English language are not the same as the resources of the Spanish language. And Spanish can do things that English can't. For example, nouns are female or, or male. And so if you have a long series in a sentence um, and there's a reference back to you know, a noun at the beginning of the sentence, you know what the reference is to. In English, you wouldn't necessarily know that. And you because might have to. Because of the to, male or female nest. Exactly. Yeah. And so in English, you might have to, to strengthen the parallel structure of the sentence to make it clear. Or you might have to um, repeat a verb or something uh-huh. to make it clear. Uh-huh. Um, and so is that, you know, are you improving the sentence? Not exactly. You're compensating yeah. for what you can't well, And you're not just being humble? You don't actually like, hey, I made that sentence better sometimes? No. And, it's, and especially in the case of Bolaño, and this is what I finally came to understand, I think, when I was translating The Savage Detectives, I felt that I really had to guard against my own, I recognize, natural tendency to fall into a sort of rhetorical register because what I decided about Bolaño was that He's a very anti-rhetorical writer. Tell me what you mean, we mean by he's, that. He resists the, the sort of standard cadence of a sentence. For example, I've also translated Mario Vargas Llosa, who's a great writer and also a very rhetorical writer. He writes these sentences that flow and build and crest. and Right. They're oratorical. They're, exactly. Yeah. And Bolaño is always resisting that in one way or another, uh-huh. either by sort of heading into the oblique in these very lyrical flights or by writing this very banal, um, flatter and being, kind of prose. I, I understand, slangier and, or seems more colloquial than like somebody like Vargas Llosa. Often, yeah. yes, often that is the case. Um, I, I was really interested in what this critic Giles Harvey wrote about Bolaño in The New Yorker. He said that he was, quote, a great novelist who was not a great writer, and that not since Balzac and Dostoevsky has there been a master of the novel with so little interest in the sentence. That's very interesting. And that reminds me, I'll do a dueling review, reviewer here, dueling critics with you, um, of a review by Adam Kirsch, which I thought was one of the very best reviews of 2666, in which he says, the mark of a truly new kind of writing is that upon first reading it, it sounds ugly to us. And it's only once we've really um, spent time with it and learned how to read it that we realize that it's not ugly, but it's a new kind of beautiful and I so think, they're saying the same things in, in glass half full, glass half empty way. Yes, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. But, uh, I, but I think that is a really apt way of reading Bolaño. It's interesting because people are used to that idea about visual art. Oh, the first time I see it, I don't get it. It's ugly. Right. Yeah, yeah. But then I, get, then I get it. Whereas with writing, they kind of demand beauty from the get-go. Right. Do you know? So in translating in general, Bolaño and otherwise, I I can imagine you would have to do research to figure out, like, what's he talking about? What's that about? Because I've been translated, and sometimes translators write me and say, this American idiom you refer to, I have no idea. Tell me what that means. Right. Well, you do end up doing a lot of research, and that's one of the things I like about translation. The more context that you have of the, you know, the language, of the setting, of the place, of the writer's other work, of, you know, other people writing around him. Obviously, you'll never have enough context, but the more you have, the better um, you are placed to make the kinds of decisions that you're making right. in every sentence. And I can imagine with 2666, you must have had to know a lot about him and a lot of stuff to get that 
Right. Right. Well, he also, you know, dives into a lot of specialized areas in 2666 that I had to research. I read a bunch of forensic manuals so I could get the language right and the part about the crimes. And I had to do some research on divination and seaweed. Black Panthers. uh, Black Panthers. Exactly. That was a really tough one. It would be like, I guess, if you're translating Moby Dick into Spanish, you'd have to like, oh, whales. I got to find out about whales. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So, uh... Any book, uh, the basic step-by-step. How do you do it? Do you have, like, here's the manuscript and or the book or whatever on this screen, and here's my screen, and I go back and forth? and Yes, pretty much. Yeah, I do a quick first draft um, pretty much as fast as I can type, and then I go back. And, you know, I do that one morning, and then in the afternoon I go back and, and do it in five-page chunks. And, and at a certain point, do you stop looking at the original and just like, oh, I'm making, I'm making it better, but just stick with your English translation? I'm always going back to the original when there's a problem, but if there's not a problem, at a certain point, yes, I'm reading through and trying to make the rhythms work, trying to make it stand on its own as a text in English. And, okay, and you finish. Okay, I'm done. First of all, how long does that take usually? Um, How long does it take to translate a book? Mm -hmm. Mm, It depends. It takes me longer than it should at this point, but... You know, I can do a book, a you know, standard size, 300-some page book in six to nine months. Right. Well, 2666, which is about 1,000 pages long, I think took me two years. Right. And so you, and you get done, you turn it into the publisher, and does anybody, like, check your work, or is it just a good, and, and print it? Nobody's checking it against the Spanish, and sometimes you know, people are surprised to hear that. But, uh, you know, if I skipped a paragraph, nobody's going to know unless some sharp reviewer picks up on it. Or a friend of the author's or something. Right, something like that. Um, So hopefully that has never happened. Interesting. Really, there's no boss of you in a certain way. There is an edit. The editor editor does There's an editor who says, I just don't like this sentence. Exactly. Uh Aha. And that's done. Of course, yes. So to get an even deeper, closer sense of your process, we've picked a few passages from this newly translated Bologna novel, The Spirit of Science Fiction. So I would like you to uh, make this work by, by reading, reading the Spanish of the Bolaño, and then we'll look at how, how the Borg did it, how the machine did it, how Google Translate did it, and then your version and, and maybe illuminate how this works. So. Sure. Okay, so um, this is the Spanish. El hogar en esta tierra del doctor Ireneo Carvajal estaba en el cuarto piso de un edificio construido en los 50 en una colonia proletaria donde abundaban los niños. And here's, and here's Google. The home in this land of Dr. Ireneo Carvajal, it was on the fourth floor of a constructed building in the 50s in a proletarian colony where children abounded. And the, the you. The earthly abode of Dr. Ireneo Carvajal was on the fourth floor of a 1950s apartment building in a working-class neighborhood with lots of kids. That's so interesting. The, the key difference is home in this land you changed to earthly abode. Right. There's definitely a bit of irony in this description of the doctor, um, as you would know if you were reading the full text. And the home in this land doesn't really capture the tone of the Spanish Although it is a direct translation of but, the but words. But it's, it's meaning funny, the, the, the earthly abode of this person. Right, exactly, yeah. yes. Yeah, whereas Ogar and Esoterra is, yeah, is it 
place on this land or, or, yeah, or right. place Ex- on this except earth. Except that esta tierra, if you're reading that as a Spanish speaker, uh-huh. you're thinking of land there as the opposite of heaven. Um, oh, really? Tierra is that? Oh, in that context. En, en esta tierra, if you're saying esta uh-huh. tierra on this earth. Um, Aha. See, that's, that's how, exactly how bad my Spanish is. I would just wait, oh, it's a place on this land. Right. Um, it, it, there's definitely more to it than just the literal right. the home on this, in this well, land. Well, yeah, that's why they pay you the big bucks. Uh, the other big change that, that uh, any of us might be inclined to do is, is Google thinks it's a proletarian colony, which is a funny phrase it in, is. in a certain way. And you turn it into a working class neighborhood. So instead of being funny or odd or weird or communistic, you just make it a normal description. Right. Well, you have to know that neighborhoods in Mexico City are called colonias. And it's not a funny word in, in Mexico. Right, it doesn't right, mean right, it's, it's not right. a colony in the sense that we understand colony, which is, you know, an outpost of settlers. Yeah. Um, and and in the Bolaño, it's pro, he says proletaria, and so Google says, yeah, okay, proletarian. And that's another interesting case where the cognate is not wrong in English. Proletarian is not wrong, but it's what I call a semi-false cognate. It's not used with the same force or in the same Political context sense. in Spanish. In Spanish, it's much more common to say proletaria. Right. We don't talk about proletarian. Unless we're talking about in, commies. Exactly, yes. Right. Unless okay. we're talking about Marx and Engels. Right. Uh, now that, I mean, just in the last couple of years, Google Translate has gotten so much better. Do you ever, like, see, oh, let's see what Google would say about this sentence? Uh, not sentences necessarily, but sometimes technical terms I use it for. Um, I think that Google is really, Google Translate is really good for boilerplate language, especially. Um, and it seems to me that it shouldn't be an impossible task for Google, but so far it still right. hasn't gotten even close to the point where you could use it in a literary translation. Good for you. It is, you're, yes, You're yes. John Henry racing the machine. Yeah, yes, I guess so. Um. Although, I mean, you know, in another sense, I... I, it, it is maybe hard to see how Google Translate could ever do exactly the same work as a literary translator just because the whole point of literary language is that you're trying to write in a stylistically unexpected way. If you're if you're an, a writer who is ambitious on a stylistic level, your whole goal is to do something new. And, right. you know, that's the way Google Translate works. It picks up on text that is already available on the Internet and collates it all. And How have from, a million people done exactly. this? Exactly. Um, and so... You know, it's sort of lost when it comes to something that is intentionally new and different. This is the most interesting moment of this interesting conversation with me because that will be a good test of has AI gotten equal to humans in this way? Because it's a very, as you're saying, very difficult way. Yeah, can, to get it, can it anticipate the new? Yes. I guess. Um, uh, and it's hard to imagine that it could get to that point. But I, th- maybe it will, it could. I believe it will, but per- perhaps not in your lifetime. <laughs> Um, so your job's good, is what I'm saying. Uh, let's let's try the next uh, piece of uh, text from um, The Spirit of Science Fiction. Okay, so this is the original. Solo eran reales, quiero decir soberanamente reales, las sonrisas de Laura en el otro lado de la habitación, sonrisa de meteorito, media sonrisa menguante, sonrisa insinuada, sonrisa de colega y de humo, sonrisa de navaja en una armería, sonrisa pensativa Y sonrisa que se encontraba con la mía. Ahora sí, sin pretextos. Sonrisas buscadas, sonrisas que buscaban. And, and Google says... They were only real. I mean, sovereignly real. Laura smiles on the other side of the room. Meteor smile. Half-waning smile. Implied smile. Colleagues smile and smoke. Smile of a knife in an armory. A thoughtful smile and smile that was with mine. Now, yes, without pretext, wanted smiles, smiles they were looking for. 
The only thing that was real, I mean supremely real, was Laura's smile from across the room, her meteorite smile, fading half-smile, barely-there smile, friend smile, smoke smile, knife-in-an-arsenal smile, pensive smile, and smile finally meeting mine without pretense. Smiles sought, smiles seeking each other. Now, this is a great example, a, a clearer example to me of why they need you to do <laughs> what you do. Uh, because you read the Google and you say, oh, it's trying, Google, but it's just not getting that run-on linguistic, you know, clause, comma, clause, bit, comma, descriptive thing that you're doing, right? So so just— It's not—what it's not getting is the cadence, I yes, think. Yes, right? And, I mean, I you know, I was arguing that Bolaño is a writer who would um, work a little bit against that kind of cadence, but he has a cadence of his own, and I think that here, you you know, you need that to pull you through the sentence. Which, which you, you, being a reader and writer, understood— phrase, comma, phrase, comma, what he was doing, and Google just didn't. The other thing that I do there that maybe is not so obvious is that I change smile. Smile becomes singular. In the Spanish, it's plural. And that just sets up the series a little bit better in English. Right. But also, it just becomes like lovely language, fading half-smile, barely-there smile, friend-smile, in that Joycean way, yeah. right? Yeah, it has a momentum and it builds, and the end of it is, is also required, you know, a fair amount of work to um, get the sense to come through and also to have it land with a, a punch. Right, and um, and again, Google says one of its things is smile of a knife in an armory, and I would go, what? And you do this beautiful thing that presumably he intended, which is making it a hyphenated, made-up well, Bologna doesn't do that, but that is a great case of um, uh, of the translator using the resources of English. Knife in, in the arsenal. Right. And, you you know, we can put a whole string of adjectives or a whole string of words that together make up an adjective in front of a noun. In Spanish, you can't do that. But it's so it's so great. As I read that, knife in an arsenal, smile. That's a that's a great phrase that is yours, not Bologna's. Oh, well, thank you. But, the, you know, the, the image behind it is Bologna's. Um, so that last bit of yours, can you read that again? And smile finally meeting mine without pretense. Smile sought, smile seeking each other. Again, a beautiful conclusion of that long da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, as opposed to the, the correct but clumsy uh, Google translation, right? Mine, now, yes, without pretext, wanted smiles, smiles they were looking for. That means nothing. Right. That's like bad English. Right. And even if you could extract some meaning from it, it makes you work so hard that you give up before you've even right. begun. Uh, so translation is supposed to be faithful. Uh, that seems like a slippery, subjective thing, but I guess you endeavor to be faithful? Well, that is sort of the central question of every translation class. You, you know, every, every, trans, every, every teacher of translation begins with this question, what does it mean to be faithful to the foreign text? And yes, of course, on some level you're faithful, but oftentimes to be faithful to the spirit of the book means being unfaithful to the letter. And, you know, of course, every translation will be unfaithful in the most basic way, which is that it's not the same sequence of words in the same, you know, on the same page. Every word is different. And in order to give the new sequence of words some integrity, you have to bring something of your own to it. Right. And and you said that under-translating, being too faithful, is a bigger problem. I th- Yeah, I think that it is. You know, opinions differ. But it's really a, a very minor distinction when you look at the translations closely. No translation is, is you know, like the Google Translate translation. Every translation is interpretive on some level. 
And and as I was thinking about this, you know, you know what it reminds me of, and I didn't even I wasn't aware of this debate of closed translation or not or under. It's it's like <laughs> these fundamental questions about the U.S. Constitution, like originalist right. or more or less, and it's it's in that case more a more profoundly consequential. Right, right. Uh, I could go on all day. This is uh, I, it's a fascinating conversation, and I really, really uh, thank you for having it with me, Natasha Wimmer. It was a pleasure. Her new translation of Roberto Bolaño's The Spirit of Science Fiction will be out momentarily. Coming up next... On one level, you have this doctor working to fix a problem that he sees, but he's working within the system of slavery. In the 1840s in Alabama, 11 enslaved black women were the subjects of brutal medical experiments. And a new play explores what the lives of these women might have been like. All I have is is my imagination. So I cannot even fathom just how horrendous it was to experience that in real life. Imagining the people who paid the price for a medical breakthrough. Next on Studio 360. Studio 360. This half hour, a controversial statue removed from Central Park. An advisory panel voting unanimously to remove the statue of Dr. J. Marion Sims. He was a pioneering 19th century gynecologist who conducted experiments on black female slaves. A 19th century physician named J. Marion Sims is known as the father of modern gynecology, thus the statue. And its removal because a century and a half later, the ugliness of Sims' research is more generally known. He subjected enslaved women to 10, 20, 30 genital surgeries apiece. Anesthesia had just been invented, but Sims did not supply it to these women. Like a lot of white people at the time, he apparently believed that black people were less sensitive to pain. We don't know much about the enslaved individual women who had no choice but to submit to these surgeries in the 1800s. But there is a new play called Behind the Sheet, now running in New York City, that imagines who they were and what they felt. Hi, I'm Charlie Yvonne Simpson, and I'm the playwright of Behind the Sheet. And I'm Evelyn Hammond, and I'm professor of the history of science at Harvard University. While this play is ultimately fiction, many of the details are real. J. Marion Sims was a doctor in Alabama who in the 1840s used enslaved black women to aid in his work to fix fistulas. In my play, the character is named George, who's uh, the fictionalization of Sims. On one level, you have this doctor working to fix a problem that he sees, but he's working within the system of slavery. You know, black women in time, in that time, enslaved women uh, were a part of the economics of a plantation. Um, and if they were broken, that uh, was a financial problem. The issue of fistulas was something that was reasonably prevalent. So women who have long uh, labors, 
uh, women who and maybe also have some deficiencies in terms of vitamins and the diet and maybe some other things uh, also contributed to there being uh, a number of women, also enslaved women, mm-hmm. who had fistulas. Well, that baby must have been trying to get out with all her might. And that fight between them, between her and the baby, left her with a hole. A hole in her woman's parts. That's why she keeps dripping and hurting. That smell. Yes. Dr. Barry is trying to fix those holes. He'll fix it. Time will tell. George sort of realizes this this could be an opportunity, not only one that will maybe benefit him financially, but ultimately, you know, he also gets a, a group of subjects <laughs> cheaply because their uh, worth has, has dropped in this economic system. When all is said and done, it will have taken close to 70 operations to perfect this on 11 subjects, but sometimes medicine takes time and patience. Luckily, I have had both. With this development, this affliction will be wiped away. Your women will no longer suffer in pain and embarrassment. They will be whole once again. And your slaves will once again be profitable. You won't have to sell them to me anymore. So he gives an address after he um, figures out how to repair the holes and the tears using silver wire sutures. He writes a paper about it, and he talks about um, three of the women by name, Betsy, Arnaka, and Lucy. But he notes that there are 11 other women that he's, he's working on. I'm Mary, and that's Sally. Hello. I'm Donna. And you? Oh, Louis. You think you can walk? Yes. Slowly. I can carry you. That's why they... I can walk. Oh, you don't have to be proud. We know it's painful. He doesn't do anything for the pain? He gives them white ladies some medicine, I assume. They have different ailments. Besides, he says you don't need it during, only after. Like he knows. One of the things that troubled historians, certainly like myself, looking at the story, is Sim's retelling of it. Mm-hmm. So his way of saying, oh, they were clamorous when I failed, when I when it was failing and they really helped me to go forward because this is so, they were suffering so much. And he centers himself and his trials and tribulations and innovation is worth it. It leaves out as if they had no other world mm-hmm. except the world that he had placed them in because he could uh, and because they were enslaved women. Oh, Master George. Yes, Philomena. During the procedure, sir, some of the women have told me that it is quite painful and that perhaps a little opium during the... Don't be silly, Philip. The risks associated with medicating during the procedure are not worth the little relief one may get. I understand that there is a certain level of pain, but you are all more than suited to handle it. My name is Nia Calloway, and I play Betty. I personally am able to see the origins of black women um, being having their pain gaslit and having their pain be um, undermined, essentially, because it starts in slavery where our humanity, or black women's humanity, was denied. I do think that, I, that we were you know, blessed with a cast of, of, of people who really, if anything, they were ones that would be like, you know what? you know, this surgery needs to be longer, we think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what what would it have been like? Like if your legs are uh, scarred and and if you're feeling this dripping going down your legs, how would you walk? We don't want people to be able to leave and be like, well, that doesn't seem so bad. You know, we were able to sort of 
linger in some of the more difficult moments um, because they were like, this is what has to happen. My name is Jahan Young. I play the character of Dinah. I would squirm that these actions could be um, perpetrated against the female body was just so jarring and maybe so uncomfortable. I have the, the privilege of being historically removed from the reality of this. Um, so all I have is, is my imagination. So I cannot even fathom just how horrendous it was to experience that in real life, in real time. Let's have a look now. Now? So that we know what we're working with. We can then move forward with the surgery. Come on. Remove your garments. Don't move, Philomena. Control yourself, goddammit. I always rejected the characterization that he's a, he's a monster. But we have to, standing here in the 21st century, see the deep reality of slavery. Mm-hmm. White supremacy and the ability to treat other people as property mm-hmm. is horrible. Mm-hmm. And any kind of innovation that comes out of it has got to be understood to be tainted mm-hmm. by that history. When I sort of imagine the fact that, you know, I have obviously have ancestors who were slaves, um, and I imagine different groups of my ancestors survived together. Um, And so I wanted to, in this play, you know, make sure that these women had a community, had this group. Master George does this. Does what? He buys us from our owners so we can work on us. There's a bunch of us here now, those of us with your condition. How do you know my condition? We ain't broken. We can smell you. There's no shame in it here. You're just one of us here. One of us who's had a hard time of it during childbirth. I think they end up being the sisters and the moms Mm -hmm. that they have lost. You know, they're also each other's nurses. Um, You know, they're the ones taking care of them after surgeries and, and, you know, when they're feeling their most pain, whether it's in giving birth or whether it's in having a surgery. Um, So they're really playing any number of roles, but ultimately it's it's the caring of each other that uh, is the main theme. My name is Christina Pitter. I play Sally in Behind the Sheet. I am uh, rather fond of the flower scene. I want to, to hold you, Philomena. Not that I'm trying to listen. Because <laughs> I'm not. But uh, you just talking in front of me like I ain't here. <laughs> that sound mighty sweet. 
you asked me. I didn't ask you. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, none of this don't mean you can't accept some flowers. No, I don't want to take some. Just from take me. the damn flowers, baby. <laughs> For the love of everything on the ground and in the sky, take the damn flowers. Being able to, ooh, have a moment to breathe after the after taking in so much between like holding each other down and, and the surgery is and and having those moments of of tenderness of softness of an opportunity to be something other than suffering other than in pain um, and remembering joy so much I didn't want to you know reveal or I didn't want to depict this this story of these women and have us just imagining their pain. I wanted to imagine them as full-fledged human beings who have every range of emotions. Part of it is also hopeful. I certainly really hope that in those those years and, and after and before, um, that they found these moments with each other and with others to feel love, to feel happiness, to feel laughter, because I, I can't imagine going through that without that. The depiction of black pain is something that's almost gotten us sort of normalized to Mm -hmm. it. But black joy and black hope in spite of the pain, in the pain, I think is, is really, really important. Sims went on to found the first women's hospital in the United States here in New York City and later became the president of the American Medical Association. Until last April, there was a statue of Sims located along the perimeter of Central Park. It has since been moved to Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, where he is buried. To date, there is no monument to the women. Behind the Sheet, written by Charlie Yvonne Simpson and directed by Colette Robert, runs through February 10th at the Ensemble Studio Theater in New York. Our story was produced by Jocelyn Gonzalez and Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Coming up... Contrast is something I'm really interested in. A new art exhibit at a serious museum features something you don't ordinarily see on museum walls. Fuzzy flooring. Funnily enough, I, I don't think that many people have worked in carpet. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. I like the bushy, the tasteless bushy shag carpet. That's kind of my favorite carpet. There's a fantastic and kind of funny new exhibit up at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. It's the work of a young artist, a a Canadian living in Chicago, named Jessica Campbell, who for this, her first solo show ever, created work almost entirely out of carpet. Funnily enough, I, I don't think that many people have worked in carpet. Her carpeting pictures are like giant comic book panels, mostly vignettes of everyday life, a studio art class, a woman playing with her dog, somebody sitting at a computer, as well as more dramatic moments like a high school breakup and a guy accidentally exposing himself. The pictures are all pretty intricate and detailed given that they're made from carpet. Uh, originally, I was using bath mats uh, um, for for all of it, and that's because they're you know the fibers are long, the pile is long enough that it can kind of hide the seams. They're collaged t- 
together. So uh, I didn't want the seams to be obvious. I wanted it to look kind of like manufactured or not so handmade. Which is part of what makes them so charmingly peculiar. In the way the rare, magnificent piece of, of flea market kitsch can be. Which makes sense considering Jessica's childhood aha art moment. When I was a kid, I remember seeing this painting in my grandparents' bathroom, which was kind of a bad painting that they'd gotten maybe at a thrift store. uh, And it was of a naked little girl sitting on a pot holding a flower. And I remember looking at it and thinking, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. I want to make beautiful things like this when I grow up. And that was kind of the initial genesis of my interest in art uh, and continued throughout my teen years. And then I studied painting uh, right. at Concordia University in Montreal. So you're you're Canadian. You're from Eastern, you're from uh, Western Canada, though, right? British Columbia. Yes, correct. I'm from Victoria, British Columbia, on Vancouver Island. So as far west as you can go. So your epiphany, uh, as, as as it were, <laughs> what was this? What I presume to be a piece of like kitschy art, right? Correct. Yeah, total complete kitsch. So that part of your artistic sensibility was was embedded early and, and still there. Yes, I have this wide range of interests. So as I continued in my art education, and especially coming to Chicago and being around the Art Institute, I've encountered all kinds of great masterworks, but I've maintained an interest in kitschy uh, uh, folk art and like, you know, low art traditions. I think with a lot of work that I'm making and I'm interested in is, um, and it it blurs, attempts to blur some of those boundaries between different arenas and uh, value systems in art. A lot of what you do, including this work we're going to talk about is up in this big show in Chicago now, um, is funny, intentionally funny. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, were you were you a funny kid? Were you, were you a, the, the class clownish type person? Um, I was like, I don't think that I was particularly funny when I was a kid. I was sort of bullied and very weird for most of my childhood, but my family was really funny, and the way that we communicate with each other is primarily through humor, so we would sit around the dinner table like shooting puns back and forth to the point that I even found it pretty irritating when I was a kid that my parents were always kind of communicating exclusively through humor. And so it feels very ingrained in just a worldview that I have or, you know, the way that I process uh, my life experiences is through humor and the way that I cope with, you know, trauma and difficult situations is through humor. You drive in a few artistic lanes, painting, drawing, performance, and you're also a a, a comics artist and writer. You've done two comic books, uh, Hot or Not 20th Century Male Artists, wonderful concept, great title, and and another one called XTC69, a a sci-fi adventure about a team of female space explorers. And you also do these very funny comic strips. Yeah, so my comic strips, they're uh, generally four-panel kind of gag cartoons, comic strips um, that are autobiographical, though things are, you know, often adjusted slightly for humorous impact. So this big debut solo exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, obviously fine art, but an extension of your comic art. The work is made out of carpeting, mainly, Had you previously worked in carpet? I 
started a few years ago, right after graduate school. I was working making kind of installations um, with paintings and then, you know, things on the floor. And I made a carpet for the ground that was a, a looked like a brick wall. Um, and it was supposed to be an installation that was a kind of uh, uh, aspirational teenage bedroom or the teen bedroom I wished I'd had. And the carpet on the floor had bricks on it because I was thinking about it as like a comedy stage backdrop. Again, thinking about my kind of interests in stand-up comedy. And I was thinking about, you know, when I was a teenager, depressed and lying on the floor and uh, uh, telling myself jokes to, you know, try to encourage myself to get up and and move around um so it was meant to be this kind of stage for lie down comedy or the kind of <laughs> jokes you tell yourself when you're depressed so that was my first foray into carpet how, how does this work how do you do this so these are collaged and like i mentioned i was using bath mats and then a trade show company called expert trade show i think uh they donated a number of remnants to me that they didn't need which meant i was able to have access to more colors that i couldn't get normally um so i have that sort of my palette uh is just whatever commercially manufactured carpet i can get my hands on and then i cut the pieces and they're and they're glued together onto I a see. so it's like a mosaic kind of deal. yeah exactly like a mosaic huh. exactly so for this show you've created these these very colorful very big pictures and, and they're not just hung in in like the typical white walled gallery uh, the, this otherwise, I guess, white-walled gallery has itself been carpeted, the walls, so the room is covered in this soft navy blue carpet, and your panels are embedded in, in that, which gives attendees the, this this trippy effect of being inside a, um, an immersive comic book. Right. So the kind of central room of the MCA exhibition is based off of uh, Giotto's Scrivini Chapel in Padua, Italy. Um, and that uh, has a series of narrative frescoes about the life of Christ. It's like, um, you know, many other uh, uh, Renaissance-era churches with similar frescoes. And I was thinking about that in how uh, it relates to the history of comics, you know, that I see those narrative paintings as being a direct precursor in the lineage of of contemporary comics and narrative art. Um, so I was interested in thinking about how I could incorporate comics into the museum setting and have it not be, you know, just a drawing or a comic page hung up on the wall. And I wanted to think about how to make something that was ideally suited for the museum, but still referenced comics history. And Canadian art history. Uh, they, they are an homage to uh, a sister Canadian artist, one not very well known to Americans, or at least not to to this American. Talk about who Emily Carr was and how she became uh, uh, a kind of muse for you. Um, Yes, so Emily Carr was a modernist painter who was born and raised in Victoria, British Columbia, uh, died in the 1940s, so about 40-something years before I was born. And she predominantly painted scenes of the forest, um, paintings of the kind of rugged 
Canadian landscape and very uh, depopulated, really beautiful paintings. She is, I would say, the single fam- famous artist or definitely the most famous artist from my hometown. I guess kind of like uh, Georgia O'Keeffe in Santa Fe. Yes, exactly. And then, yes, the in terms of the narrative, it oscillates between in- images from Emily Carr's biography and my own biography with the hopes that they become kind of indistinguishable and intertwined. And she and Emily Carr was also also did comics in the early 19th early 20th century? Yeah, so this is a really interesting thing. I as I was uh, preparing to work on this exhibition, I kind of knew I wanted to think about her uh and I was doing research in her archives and discovered these comics huh. uh, wow. that she had done. So she worked She worked briefly as a cartoonist for a magazine called Western Women's Weekly in 1918. Uh, but prior to that, she also did a series of kind of diary cartoons and kind of funny drawings in her journals in around, uh, I don't know, 1900 to 1905. Um, so before she became well known for painting. Uh, and the diary cartoons are the ones I'm most interested in. They're very personal and intimate and um, yeah, I mean, it's unclear who the audience was. I think she made some of them for her sisters to kind of amuse them, but they're, uh, the the tenor of them is like, it's very interesting. But coming across that for you, uh, thinking about this show must have been like, holy cow, synchronicity. I, I, this, this is what I got to do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the other crazy thing that I found out as I was researching her is that she made latchhook rugs, uh, which a number of huh. my pieces made out of carpet kind of resemble latchhook rugs. So, you know, she wasn't able to always pay the bills with painting and she had to take in other kinds of work. And one of those kinds of work was cartooning and the other one was uh, or another one was working on latchhook rugs. But but hold on. Were you already deciding, oh, I'm just going to be about, sort of inspired by Emily Carr and I'm going to use carpeting? And then you discovered her her rug making Yes, job? exactly. Yeah, exactly. Wow. It was just like a total um, instance of synchronicity. And that kind of affirmed for me that I did want to, <laughs> you know, look, work with her. And so these these panels are like huge, right? Like mm-hmm. three by four feet. Yeah, exactly. Three. Each of them is three by four feet. There are 24 of them in that room. All bright colors, dozens of colors and, and, and figures sort of... Uh, crudely done, no no offense, a lot Muppet-ish. It, it all looks fun and comic. I mean, I think that they have this sort of cartoony, friendly approach totally. to them, but then some of the subject matter that's being de- depicted is a little bit more yeah. visceral or gross or disturbing, and that kind of um, contrast is something I'm really interested in, and something that's like seductive to look at. You want right. to go look at these bright colors, and then when you get up close, it's like a little bit off-putting. Let's look at one more closely. This is called Inner Harbor. Uh, it's complicated, this urban scene with buildings in the background, lots of little yellow boxes, uh, which are illuminated windows, so we know it's night. Uh, there's a building in the middle ground with two doors and the word milestones in red. And in the center, you have two people, uh, a peach-colored woman wearing a tank top and pants and, and a kind of gray man wearing a tank top and shorts. So what's going on here? This is a part of town that Emily Carr writes about and she talks about in her writings, but it's also where my high school boyfriend dumped me Um and in a bad chain restaurant called Milestones. Um, so this is kind of the aftermath of that, you know, very traumatizing breakup. 
um, in the foreground. So it's you, like, horrified, hands on face, I guess crying. <laughs> Is that, that's the boyfriend? And then that's the boyfriend, a kind of ungenerous oh. depiction of the boyfriend, I think. Ungenerous, as opposed to the completely generous other figures in these yeah. pictures? <laughs> right. It does get to uh, this other fundamental thing that you mentioned earlier about your work, which is, mm-hmm. hi, low, let's, what's the difference? Let's, mm-hmm. let's mix it all up, right? Yeah, right. I am really... Uh, interested in mixing up high low, and I think also with like in you know in a postmodern era, it's really opened up uh, in in the art world. It's opened up the ability to work in all kinds of materials, combine high materials, low materials, right. and similarly, you know, different uh, viewpoints. So there can be serious subject matter and humorous right. subject matter kind of intertwined. And and so is this it with carpet? Are you are you done with carpet as a medium? I don't necessarily want to be just you know, the, the, carpet, the girl. carpet girl <laughs> for the rest of my life. So I am going to, you know, bring back painting and other right. uh, and continue drawing and, uh, you know, incorporating other materials as well. But yeah, I have a lot of carpet. I am and I have learned a lot in working on this exhibition. So I'd like to use those skills in some way. And, and what about humor? Can you imagine as you evolve uh, as an artist, uh, 10 or 20 years from now, you'll have left maybe the, the comedic altogether? I think human experience is really varied and contradictory and complex. And so to only make one kind of work or, you know, hit one sort of um, yeah. note for the rest of my life would be restrictive and tedious, I think. Uh, congratulations on this show. I, I eagerly await your next pieces and work. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure getting to speak to you. The exhibition, Chicago Works, Jessica Campbell, is up at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago until July 7th. And you can see images of Jessica's work from the show at studio360.org. That's it for this episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is Sandra Lopez Monsalve. Our producers are Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. Something that's like seductive to look at, you want to go look at these bright colors, and then when you get up close, it's like a little bit off putting. Thanks very much for listening. P.R.I. Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. A consultant in the country radio industry said, if you want to have good ratings, then you should program mostly men. That's become the rule of thumb on country radio. Think of them as a salad and then put women sparingly on top as tomatoes. How women in country music are finding new ways to succeed. Next time on Studio 360.